Okay, we're beginning here on the bottom of Samachem Bet. We're just going to review the Mishnah that we finished off with yesterday because that's going to be the sugya today. Hakiteya, someone who has a problem with their leg, either because it's missing or it's not functional. Yotzei can go out with the prosthetic that replaces that leg. Divi Rabbi Meir. That's the view of Rabbi Meir, whereas Rabbi Yossi Oser. Rabbi Yossi argues on that point and says that you can't wear it. Rashi says that the machloket here is a very simple machloket as to whether the prosthetic is classified as a shoe or is it not classified as a shoe. Rabbi Meir believes that it is classified as a shoe and therefore it's normal to wear it on Shabbat and therefore it's not a masui because it's a malbush, it's part of his clothing and that's why he can wear it. Rabbi Yossi believes that it's not a takshit, it's not a malbush and therefore it becomes a masui. As the Mishnah Bura points out, Obviously, it's not a real Masoi because he's not carrying it in the way that normal people carry it, but it's problematic because it's not considered a Malbusha Tachshit, and therefore it's considered to be a Masoi, a burden that he's carrying on Shabbat. That's the view of Rashi, and it actually squares with what the Gemara is going to say further on, that it seems to be the issue at hand here is whether this is classified as a shoe or not classified as a shoe. The Bali Tosafot, who always try to reconcile Gemarot in different places in Shas, note that the Gemara in Yoma seems to indicate that everybody agrees that the prosthetic is considered to be a minal, considered to be a shoe. And if that's the case, then what is the argument here between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yossi? And the Gemara over there discusses the fact that they was a gzeira, which is that are we afraid that the prosthetic is going to fall off or not stay on, and then the person is going to come to carry it on Shabbat, and that's the machlok between them. Rabbi Meir believes there's no need for such gzeira, whereas Rabbi Yossi believes there is a requirement for that gzeira. The Tosvo then query and say, what's the question here? If this prosthetic is how he's walking, how do you ever have a situation in which the individual is going to remove the prosthetic and walk with it in his hand and carry it, he can't walk without the prosthetic. So it doesn't make so much sense that that's their machloket. So therefore, the Baliatosafot make a suggestion here, which has huge nafkamino aloha, which is that it's a situation in which you have not only a prosthetic, but also walking canes or crutches that the individual is using. So therefore, you have a problem now, which is that the individual has other means of support or other means of walking. And the primary items that are helping this individual to walk or to move are the crutches or the canes. And the prosthetic is just there either to help him a little bit or for appearances. And therefore, the machloket here is when the prosthetic is put on, do we worry about the fact that it might fall off and then he'll come to carry it because he has the other objects that will help him to walk. Obviously, from the Balea Tosafot, it has a huge nafkamino with regards to the issue of we're using a cane or crutches on Shabbat. According to the Balea Tosafot, even in a place where there's no Eruv, even in a place where there's a Rishut Rabim, an individual can walk with crutches or a cane if that is the means by which they walk. That's the means by which they can propel themselves forward. And therefore, it's not considered to be hotza'ah, carrying, but rather part of their malbush or part of their necessary equipment in order to walk or make themselves functional. And so therefore, Tosafot says that's the machloket here between Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Meir as to when the person's using these crutches or canes to walk. And then he also has a prosthetic. What do we say about that prosthetic? Do we worry about him carrying it when it falls off or not carrying it when it falls off? The Tosafot then brings the Rav Porat who brings a third possibility as to what the Mishnah is discussing, and that is that the prosthetic here is simply aesthetic in nature. The individual does not have maklot, does not have crutches. He just has a prosthetic because he wants to, it appear, 
like he has a leg. And that's what the question is. He's not using it for walking on. He's not using it for support. He's simply using it for the aesthetics of projecting that he has a leg or it appearances that he has a leg. And that's the machloka between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yossi as to whether an individual like that is likely when it falls off to carry it or not carry it because it's not something that is absolutely necessary for function. The Sfat Emet doesn't love the Rav Porat's explanation because as we're going to see in the Gemara, Gemara is going to compare it to other issues where about wearing a shoe or chalitza. And in those instances, it doesn't make sense to be speaking about aesthetics. It seems to be that we're really speaking about the underlying equipment being a shoe or functioning like a shoe. And therefore, he's not so enamored with this explanation of the Rav Porat. Interesting enough, when the Shulchan Aruch quotes this halacha, he actually combines the halacha of Rav Porat with that of the Tosafot and says that the prosthetic is a situation in which they have canes and crutches to walk with and that the prosthetic is there not simply as an aid but as an aesthetic addition. And so therefore he combines the two together when he brings the halacha down, interestingly enough. And obviously the nafkaminot here, according to Rashi, you have a machloket sugyot. You have the Gemara Yoma that thinks that the machlok between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yossi deals with the question as to whether the person is going to carry or not carry the prosthetic when it falls off. Whereas the Mishnah here is discussing a question as to whether it's considered to be a minal, a shoe, or not considered to be a shoe. Whereas the Baliyat Tosafot think that the two sugyot can be reconciled, and therefore they must be speaking about a situation in which the individual has canes or crutches. And then that comes to the Big Chiddush that the Baliyat Tosafot add, that a person who has canes or crutches in order to walk and would not be able to walk without them, they are considered to be a malbush or something that is permitted to be, quote-unquote, carried on Shabbat because it's not carrying anymore. It's what makes the individual functional or have the ability to walk on Shabbat. And that's why you would be allowed to go out with them even into the Rishut Rabim. Now the Mishnah continues and says, V'mishlo Beit Kibul, if this prosthetic has an area in it which is a receptacle for kititim, for rags or something soft that cushions the individual who's placing their leg into the prosthetic, then it's tamay because, as Rashi explains over here, the prosthetic here is made out of wood, and we have a principle that pshute cleates. Wooden utensils that do not have a bait kibul, do not have a receptacle in them, are not mikabal tuma. So in order for this prosthetic to be mikabal tuma, it has to have a receptacle into which you place something, and for that reason you need to have this extra space that has these rags for cushioning in order to make it into something that has a bait kibul. And then that bait kibul changes it into something that is classified as a cleat that is mikabal tuma. Now Rashi notes, doesn't the prosthetic already have a bait kibul for inserting the leg into the prosthetic? So Rashi says that that's not considered to be a bait kibul because it has to be a receptacle that is used to carry something that's inside of it carry whatever item is placed into the receptacle. Over here, when the prosthetic is carved out and the person inserts their leg into it, the prosthetic is not carrying the leg in any way. It's not the receptacle that is actually being used to carry the leg. And since that's not carrying anything, or there's no material that's being placed into it, that's not considered to be a receptacle. It's only if the receptacle has extra space for these rags that it has a bait kibul, and therefore it can be mikabel tuma. Some of the Achronim over here, like the Chazanish and the Kedot Yaakov, point out that you have to add to Rashi's explanation here, not simply that the leg is not carried in the receptacle of the prosthetic, but also that the receptacle of the prosthetic is made in such a way 
Not that it really is a receptacle, but rather that it has outer walls that then allow it to securely attach to the leg. And so it's actually not really made as a bait kibul, but rather it's made to secure it to the leg, as opposed to when you have the titim, the rags that are going to be placed in there, where it's a bait kibul, and that's why it would be mekabal tuma in that case, and not in the instance where it doesn't have that extra room for those items. The Mishnah then continues and says, smuchot shelo, an individual, as Rashi notes over here, that is not only problematic with one leg, but has problems with both of his legs, and therefore he's unable to use a prosthetic in this case, but rather he can use some sort of shin guards or items that strap onto his thighs that allow him to move along the ground without scraping himself, without dirtying himself. So they become the quote-unquote equivalent of his shoes. So those items are tzmeim midras. They have tumat midras, which is tumah that is conveyed through either laying on something, standing on something, sitting on something, which deals with individuals that have tumah yotzei gufo, like a zav, a zava, a nida, a mitzora. All of those individuals have what's called tumat midras. And that tumah here would be applicable because the individual sits having these items bear weight, and therefore it would have tumat midras. The truth is that the same is true in the previous situation with the prosthetic, that it also, as Tosafot points out, is tamei tumat midras. Nevertheless, the Tosafot later on says that the reason the Mishnah did not write tamei midras in the first instance is because, in the case, it's either tamei tumat midras, and because of that, it's also mekabal tumat tamei, because there's a beit kibul. Absent that beit kibul, it's not mekabal midras, and it's not mekabal tumat As opposed to here, by the smuchot, where the only question is whether they have a din of tumat midras or not midras, but even absent them being used as smuchot, they still are not shute kliates, and therefore they are mekabal tumatamait, even if the individual is not leaning on them or wearing them. And so that's why the Tosavot says the Mishnah separated between these two items, say that the tumah in the first case is tumat, both midras and tumatmait are dependent on having a bait kibul. As over here, the smuchot are only dependent on the person wearing them for tumat midras, but even when they're not wearing them, they would have a din of tumatmait, because either they are built with a bait kibul in them, or because they are considered to be clothing that has a bait kibul, and then they would be tamay tumatmeit, even independent of not wearing them. And that's why the Mishnah separated between these two issues. Now, it says, Yotzim behem b'Shabbat. Individual can wear these on Shabbat because they're considered to be a malbush. They're considered to be something that is necessary for him to go out on Shabbat with in order to be functional. Benichnasim behem b'Azara. And you're allowed to wear them into the Azara, which is the question that the Gemara Yoma deals with with regards to the previous part of the Mishnah, which is, is this item classified as a shoe? If it is classified as a shoe, it has a number of nafkaminot where shoes are important in halacha. One of those is with regards to entering into the Azara. One has to remove their shoes because you're going to a makom kadosh, and therefore shal nalecha, you have to shed your shoes in order to go into that location. And so that's one of the discussions in the Gemara Yoma. The other one is with regards to Yom HaKippurim, where one is not allowed to wear shoes. If the item is designated as a shoe, then they can't wear it on Yom HaKippurim. So, in the first instance, Rashi says that's part of the machloka between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yossi. Is it classified as a shoe or not classified as a shoe? Against that Gemara and Yoma that says everybody agrees that it's a shoe, but it's a different question of whether it's a Gzeira or not. Over here, the Mishnah clearly says that it's not classified as a shoe, and as Rashi notes, that's because it's not worn at the end of his leg. Since it's not worn at the tail end of his leg or at the 
area where it would have been his foot, it doesn't have a classification as a minal, it has a classification as a protection or a shin guard or clothing that he wears around his leg. And that's why you can go into the azara with it, as well as why you can go out on Shabbat with it, because it's something either that's attached so well that it's not going to fall off according to the Bali Atosafot, or according to Rashi, because it's not a question of classification of the shoe, it's a question of classification of clothing, and here both Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yossi would agree that it has a classification as being something that a person wears, and it would not be a masui, would not be considered to be a burden. Now, kisei usmukot shelo tmeim midras, an individual, again, who does not have function with either of his legs, in order to then facilitate his ability to move around, they make a kisei, the equivalent of a wheelchair, without wheels on it. So the individual has something to sit on. And then he has these blocks or other things that help him with his arms, crutches that help him move. And he swings his body with the chair underneath it in order to move along. So that's the kisei. And then the smuchot shalo. Here in the simplest reading, if we say that the smuchot are similar to the previous item mentioned in the Mishnah, that would mean that these something that he wears on his legs as well. Whereas if you explain it, and some do explain it this way, that the smuchot are the description of the hand items that the individual is using in order to propel themselves forward. They can't reach the ground when they're sitting on this kisei, so they have arm extensions or blocks of wood that help them push themselves or propel themselves forward. And there's a code considered to be the smuchot. The Mishnah here says to me midras. They have a din of midras because the individual leans on them or rests on them, so they have a din of yeshiva shriva putting pressure or sitting on such items. So the kisei and the smuchot have a din of tumat midras. And one cannot go out with them on Shabbat. The simple reading of the Mishnah says that you can't go out with either of these items, not the kisei and not the smuchot. Rashi says the problem here is that in Yotzim Shabbat is because I did the talu v'lo Since they're hanging and they're not on the ground, sometimes they fall away. So therefore, Rashi clearly says that there's a bifurcation in the din here with regards to the two items mentioned in the Mishnah. There's a kisei and the smuchot. And Rashi says that the Mishnah is only addressing the smuchot, which is the kisei. As far as the chair is concerned, that is no question he can go out with it on Shabbat because it makes him functional and it's well attached to him. And therefore, it's not a problem for him to go out with it as well as enter into the azara with such an item. That's because it's not a shoe, and it's well attached to him. The smuchot, on the other hand, Rashi says, are problematic. His rabbeim say because they don't need them so much. Rashi says that doesn't make so much sense. Just because he doesn't need them so much doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to be worn. There has to be something that we're worried about on Shabbat. So Rashi claims that these smuchot can fall off. Now, Rashi clearly interprets the smuchot here differently than earlier in the Mishnah. He says that this individual is working with actually three items. And this is one of the proofs that the Ba'i Tosafot bring to the fact that crutches or a cane are allowed to be used on Shabbat, even if you believe like the Rab Purat, that the earlier part of the Mishnah is not speaking about an individual as a cane or crutches. That is because there are three parts to this individual's apparatus. There's a kisei, which is attached to him, which like the Rashi, the Ba'i Tosafot believe, is allowed to be worn on Shabbat and can go into the Azara and is Tomei Tumat Midras. Then he has these blocks on the side or crutches that he uses, which the mission does not address at all and assumes are totally fine and can be used. The only thing that can't be utilized over here are the smuchot. And the smuchot here are the equivalent of some form of shoe or 
something that the individual wears at the end of the legs or stumps of the legs that the individual has. And sometimes when he rocks himself forward on the chair, they touch the ground. So they're somewhat useful or helpful in his movement, but they're not absolutely necessary. And what Rashi says is they're not tied on well because they're not so functional. And because of that, they can fall off. And that's what we're worried about over here, which is that, that they may be carried on Shabbat because they're not absolutely necessary. According to Rashi, the smuchot, reference to these socks, shoe-like items that are at the end of his legs, since they're at the end of the legs, they're determined to be shoes, unlike the smuchot before, which were on his thighs, and then were used as a malbusha protection for his thighs, and not at the end of his legs. So they're classified as shoes here. They are shoes, therefore they have tumat midras, they have a problem going on on Shabbat because they could fall off, and you're not allowed into the Azara with them because of the fact that they are classified as shoes. That's the way Rashi reads it. In that way, Rashi, first of all, separates between the Kisei and the Smuchot. And number two is, he says the Smuchot here are different than the Smuchot earlier in the Mishnah. The simple way to read the Mishnah would be that the Kisei and the Smuchot are problematic to go out on Shabbat. Then you have to explain why the Kisei is problematic, probably for the same reason, which is not well attached to the individual, and therefore it would not be permitted. Or, if you also explain smuchot, like we did before, that they were something that made it functional for him to move, like, for instance, they were the crutches, then that would go against the chiddush of the tosafot. But the majority, vast majority of Rishonim read that the kisei is fine, and that the smuchot there are not a reference to the crutches or the things that help him propel himself forward, but rather the quasi shoes that he's wearing, and therefore the Mishnah's din is that they are tmei midras, because they do get leaned on sometimes when he rocks himself forward. According to Rashi, because they can fall off easily. You can't go into the Azarab because they're at the end of the individual's legs, which then are the equivalent of shoes. And that's why they have to be removed when they go into the Azarab. Now, the nafkamina from this, or the locha that is Yotzemiza, is, first of all, what the Bayatot said before, that going out with a cane or crutches on Shabbat is mutar, if that's what makes the individual functional. In addition, Rav Moshe Feinstein in a tshuva says that the kisei shows you that a wheelchair is something that is mutar for an individual to go out with on Shabbat, even without an Eruv, even going into Rishut Rabim, and that's because the individual's functionality or ability to move is determined by the wheelchair. And even though it doesn't help him to actually functionally walk, nevertheless, since it's what makes him functional and ability to move, just like the crutches or the cane in the case that the Balitosa would mention, so too the wheelchair would be in that same category. Now the Mishnah ends off with Luktamin to Horin and Yotzimben. Luktamin don't have a din of Tumah, they're not classified as a Beged, and therefore they don't have a din of Tumah. On the other hand, you can't go out with them on Shabbat because they're not necessarily a Beged, a Tachshit of any sort. The Gemara will discuss what exactly the Luktamin is, Rashi over here says that it's a mask to scare kids with, but the Gemara will give a number of options as to what the Luktamin is. So Amalei Ravah, the Rav Nachman. Hey, Chitanan, how does the Mishnah read over here? Amalei, lo yadana. He says, I don't know. Hilchata mai, what is the halacha? Amalei, lo yadana. It says, I don't know what the halacha is. If I don't know what the Mishnah is, then I don't know what the halacha is. The question being posed over here is positions of Rabbi Merit and Rabbi Yossi. It seems to me that it was unclear as to when it says Akitea Yotzei was that Divri Rabbi Yossi, or was it the other way around? Akitea Yotzei Bikabshalo Divri Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yossi Oser. 
So the machloket is between Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Meir, and we know whenever you have a machloket between Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Meir, Allah ke Rabbi Yossi. So it's important to know whether Rabbi Yossi is the matir over here, or Rabbi Yossi is the oser. So first of all, you need to know what the girsa is in the Mishnah, and then once you know the girsa, you'll know what the locha is. And so when Rava asks his Rebbe, Rav Nachman, what's the girsa in the Mishnah? He says, I don't know. Then he asks him, what's the locha? He says, I don't know either, because I don't know what the girsa is. Itmar. But now we do have other Amuraim who have positions with regards to the Mishnah, which is Amar Shmuel and Kiteya. Lashona Mishnah is the opposite of what we have in our Mishnah. Our Mishnah says, Akiteya Yotzei B'Kav Shalo Div Rabbi Meir. Shmuel says that the Mishnah actually reads, Ain Akiteya Yotzei B'Kav Shalo Div Rabbi Meir. The Meir says that you're not allowed to, and Rabbi Yossi is a Matir. And Rav Huna has the same Girsa in the Mishnah, Ain Hakiteya. Am Rav Yosef. Hov Amar Shmuel, Ain Akiteya. Ve'amar Rav Huna, Ain Akiteya. Ananami Nitnei, Ain Akiteya. You have two big Amoraim here. You have Rav Huna and Shmuel saying that the Girsa in the Mishnah should be Ain Akiteya, opposite of what we have in our Mishnah. That's where we should read the Mishnah in that manner. Matkivla Rava Bar Shira. Lo Shmuel Ho Had Matnei Rav Hanan Bar Rava L'Chiyar Bar Rav. Didn't you hear about this issue where Rav Hanan Bar-Arava was teaching Rav's son, Kameh Rabbi Kituna the Bey Rav, when he was in the side room, or the smaller room of the Beit Midrash of Rav, He was relaying the similar girsa to that which Shmuel and Rav Huna had indicated, that the Mishnah says, and Rav Yossi is matir, the opposite of what we have in our Mishnah, and Rav signaled to him, or hinted to him, that he should flip around the girsa, and have the girsa match that which is found in our Mishnah. Either Rab was not available, he was learning something else, he was davening, so he couldn't speak to them, but he signaled that that was the wrong girsa. And so, Vamarav Nachman Bar Yitzchak, the Simanech, the way to remember the proper girsa in the Mishnah is Samech Samech, which is Rabbi Yossi, who has a Samech in his name. Oser is the one who says that it is Asur, and that's the girsa that's found in our Mishnah. And Rab says that that's the proper girsa. Now, what do we do with the fact that Shmuel and Rabuna think that the Girsu was the opposite? That the Gemara says now, we also find that Shmuel reversed or relented on his position. It's not. We have a Mishnah in Chalitza. Chalitza requires a woman whose husband passed away and she did not bear any children from that husband to then perform Yibum with the brother of that individual. If they do not perform Yibum, then there has to be Chalitza that's done. Part of the process of Chalitza is that the woman removes the shoe from that man who is going to perform Yibum with her, and then she's Yorek, and then she spits. That shoe is the subject of this Mishnah, which is Chalitza b'sandal sheinu shaloh. If he used a sandal that wasn't his, b'sandal shal eitz, or a wooden sandal, o shal small b'yamin, or use the wrong shoe on that foot, Chalitza k'sheira. Despite the fact that all of these shoes aren't seemingly shoes, nevertheless it's k'sheira. The Amrinan Mantano, and we said, who's the author of this position that believes that even though these shoes are subpar, nevertheless they're classified as shoes, and the Chalitza is considered to be a good Chalitza. Amashmuel, Rabbi Meir, he, that's the Shita of Rabbi Meir. Now according to Rashi's view of the Mishnah, this is simple to understand, the Machlokan of the Mishnah was, is a prosthetic, which is made out of wood, considered to be a shoe? Rabbi Meir says, yes it is. Rabbi Yossi says, no it's not. And now we compare it to Chalitza, and it's understandable now what's going on here. Here you have a sandal shall eights, and that was the only question with regards to who's the author of this position that a wooden shoe is classified as a shoe. And Shmuel comes back and says it's Rabbi Meir. So that proves two things. One is that Shmuel has a girsa now similar to Rab in the Mishnah, which is Rabbi Meir is the one who is matir. And number two, like Rashi, the Gemara here sounds like 
the question at hand is a question of whether a wooden shoe is classified as a shoe or a not a shoe. Tosafot, back on the Mishnah, then says about this part of the Gemara, the way to reconcile that with his shita, that the argument's not about a shoe, but rather a gzera on Shabbat, then what does that have to do with chalitza at all? Everybody agrees that a wooden shoe is a shoe. So why are you assigning this position to Rabbi Meir? And the Balei Tosafot suggests that that is because once they made it a gzera on Shabbat, that you can't wear it, then that gzera impacted on being classified as a shoe. Somewhat circular in its logic, but the idea being that once the Chachamim tell you that you can't wear such a shoe on Shabbat, even though it's classified as a shoe, it starts to lose its status as a shoe in other contexts. And that's what the Gemara is saying over here, that the Mishnah in Chalitza says you can't use a sandal shleitz, not because a sandal shleitz is not a minal, but once you say you can't use it on Shabbat, then it stops having that functionality like a shoe, and therefore that's why it loses its status, similar to the other items that are mentioned in the Mishnah over there, which are that they are subpar in some way in terms of being shoes. It's on the wrong foot, it's someone else's shoe, so it doesn't fit properly, and so too by Sandal Shalit. So that's the way Tosafot reconciles that with his position in the Mishnah. And as Shmuel brings that it's proof that it's Rabbi Meir, it's not because of our Mishnah, Kitei Yotzei Divri Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yossi Oser. So he has the gear so like Rav, the way that we have it in our Mishnah. And the Gemara suggests also, Vav Ravuna Adarbe. And Ravuna also retracted his position. Titania, we have a brighta. Sandal Shel Sayadin. We have a shoe that is worn by the lime workers. Rashi over here claims that the lime workers wore it because of the heat of the lime. In order not to burn themselves by walking in the lime, they used to have these shoes that they put on, these wooden clogs that they put on their feet in order to walk into the lime and not injure themselves. That's what he claims his rebellion suggested. On the other hand, Rashi himself, and this is the way the Bali Tosafot learn over here, is that the Sandal Shal Sayyidim was not actually made out of wood, but rather made out of kash. It was made out of straw. The question is, does it have a classification of a shoe, or does it not have a classification of a shoe? So now we said here, Sandal Shal Sayyidim Tamei Midras. It has Tumat Midras, because the individual wears them, or walks on them. And a woman can use it for Chalitza. And you can go out with it on Shabbat. So for all of these items, it has a classification like a shoe. It is a wooden shoe, according to the Rebbeim of Rashi. And it has Tumat Midras, because people wear it. And therefore it's Mikabal Tumat Midras. A woman can use it for a shoe, like that position of Rabbi Meir that we saw before. And you can wear it on Shabbat, because it's a shoe, and therefore it's a Malbush. That's the view of Rabbi Kiva. And others, meaning the counterparties to Rabbi Kiva, did not agree with this. Vatanya, and the Gra changes this Vatanan because it says a Mishnah and Ediot, Hodulo, that some individuals did agree with him. So Amaravuna, Man Hodulo, who are the ones that agreed with Rabbi Kiva and those that disagreed? So he says the one who agreed was Rabbi Meir, because Rabbi Meir, like in our Mishnah says, that a wooden shoe is classified as a shoe. So that's the same way Rashi learned it in the Mishnah. And again, over here, according to the Rebbeim of Rashi, we're talking about a wooden shoe. And the comparison is that, just like in the Mishnah here, the wooden shoe, according to the mayor, is considered to be a shoe. So to Rabbi Kiva and all these other instances, classifies a wooden shoe as something that is considered or classified to be a shoe. Uman lohodulo, and who's the one that disagrees? That's Rabbi Yossi. When our Mishnah says that a wooden shoe is not classified as a shoe. And so too over there, he believes against Rabbi Kiva's position that it's not classified as a shoe. Rashi on the other hand, viewed that the shoe that the Sayyidin were wearing was made out of straw. 
So if that's the case, then what's the comparison to our Mishnah? What does it have to do with our Mishnah? So as Rashi explains in the Bayi Tosafot second this, the question is whether kash, straw, is considered to be like wood, as we're going to see in the upcoming Gemara. And therefore, that's the parallel to our Mishnah, which is, is it wood? And therefore, it has the din like our Mishnah, which would then be subject to the Machloket, Rabbi Meir, and Rabbi Yossi. Or does kash have a different din and it's not considered to be wood? And we'll see that there are other opinions or dissenting opinions that believe, unlike Rabbi Kiva, that kash is not considered to be like wood. And therefore, Rabbi Kiva's position that a straw shoe is considered or classified to be a shoe is equivalent to Rabbi Meir's position in our Mishnah, whereby he considers a wooden shoe to be a shoe. And that's the comparison between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yossi's Machloket in our Mishnah to that statement of Rabbi Akiva in the Brayta with regards to the shoe of the Sayyidin. Now, Rabbi Yosef Amar, Rabbi Yosef says that the lo hodudu and the hodulo of Rabbi Akiva's stira is not Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yossi, but rather man lo hodulo. Who are those that don't agree with Rabbi Akiva? That's Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri, that's none, because they have a, a Mishnah in Kalim, as you can see here in the side, the Masoda Shas notes that maybe it should read Vitania because the Mishnah in Kalim is not exactly the wording that we have. Whereas the Gra changes the Girsa to match the Girsa of the Mishnah in Kalim. Kaveret shel kash. If you have a cylinder of kash, meaning like a bundle of straw. Ushfoferet shel kanim. And a piping that's made out of reed. Rabbi Kiva mitameh. Rabbi Kiva says such an item is tameh. Rabbi Yochanan Minuri mitaher. Rabbi Yochanan Minuri says that it is Tahor. So this is the proof that Rashi and the Balitos would use to say that we must be talking about a shoe of the Sayyidin that's made out of straw, because then it makes sense to compare it to that Mishnah and Kelim with regards to Kaveret Akash. Now we know we're speaking about the same material, and therefore Rabbi Yosef is bringing that as a parallel to that statement or Brayta with regards to the Sandal Shel Sayyidin. On the other hand, if you believe that we're speaking about a wooden shoe, then what's the point of bringing down a Mishnah in Kelim that deals with a Kaveret Shel Kash? Here they will say that the point of the Kaveret Shel Kash over here, the Machlog between Rabbi Kiva, who is Mitameh, and Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri, who is Mitaher in this Mishnah in Kelim, is because, according to Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri, it's not the usual material that is used for these items. And so too, you would have to say that the shoe of the Sayyidin was not normally made from wood, and then that's the comparison between these two cases, even though, again, it would be much simpler to read it, and that's why the Baal would favor Rashi's view that the shoe of the Sayyidin was made out of straw. So let's assume like that view in Rashi, which is then that it's made out of straw, and now you have a machloket, kaveret shel kash, when you're dealing with straw, a bundle or a cylinder of straw, and a shvoveret shel kanim, or a piping that's made out of reeds, Rabbi Kiva mitamei, says it is tamei, Rabbi Yochanan minuri mitaher. And that's what... Rabbi Yosef is saying that Rabbi Yochum Nuri is the one who argues on Rabbi Kiva because he believes that kash does not have a status of wood and therefore its classification is not something that has tuma to it. Whereas Rabbi Kiva believes that kash does have a status of wood according to Rashi and therefore it is a din in tuma and therefore that will also be the case by the sandal shel sayadin and that's how Rashi explains the entire sugya here. Whereas, according to the Rebbeim of Rashi, again, we noted that the commercial kash is just an unusual material, and that's the question at hand. So here, again, Rabbi Akiva is mitameh, Rabbi Yochman Nuri is mitaher, and Rabbi Yosef claims Rabbi Yochman Nuri is the one who disagrees with Rabbi Akiva. Amamar, so now we're going back to discuss this brighta, sandal shel sayadin, tameh midras. A shoe that is worn by the sayadin has too much midras. 
The Gemara says, Halab lehilucha abde. It's not made to be walked in. So Rashi claims over here that the sandal shall say adim was only made as a tachshit and wasn't made to be worn as a shoe. And if you do use it as a shoe, then we're going to say to you, Amodun asemachtenu. That's not the primary purpose. Take it to use it for its primary purposes. And that primary purpose does not have tumat midras associated with it because the feet of the individual are not in it. The Ibayat Tosafot bring from Rebelezimi Mitz from the Uraim, asking the Rashba, what's the question of the Gemara over here? Okay, fine, so he doesn't wear it any other time, but he wears it when he's doing his work. And if he wears it during the time that he's doing his work, why isn't that enough to make it into Tamei Tumat Midras? And therefore, the Baliyat Tosafot suggests that the Sandal Shosayadim is not made to be worn, but rather it's one of the tools of the lime workers, whether they put it on their hands, whether they used it for spreading it was something that the primary use, which was not something that to be worn on the feet. And therefore, that's the question of the Gemara here. Why is it to be made to mat midras if it's not made to be worn on your feet? And that's what Rashi said. And we say, take it to its primary purpose, which is one of the tools of the Sayyidin. On the other hand, the Re explains, and this is likely what Rashi was thinking, which is that it was not made to be worn by your feet. It was made to be a protection for your shoes so that the lime or the hot lime would not burn off your shoes. And therefore, it's not made to be walked on, but rather made to be a protection for the shoes of the lime workers. In either case, then it would not have a din of tumat midras. That's because it's not made to be walked in. That it does have that function because many times the lime workers, according to the way that the Uraim was asking the Ashbah, means that even though it was a tool of their trade, many times when they were walking home, they used to put them on as shoes to walk home in, or going to the re, even though it's just used to cover over their shoes, to protect their shoes, sometimes they wear it home as a shoe itself. And since uh, sometimes it functions as a shoe, then it takes on too much midras, because then part of its primary function is to be worn as a shoe, and that means that there's weight being borne by it, and therefore it's subject to too much midras. Okay, now the Gemara continues with our Mishnah, which is in Yeshlo Beit Kibuk Titim Tamei. If it has a place or a receptacle for the rags to be placed in, it has a din of Tumah. Amrabai Tamei Tumat Mate, Vena Tamei Midras. It has a din of Tumat Mate because it is a Beit Kibul now, but it's not Tamei Midras because he believes that this prosthetic wasn't used to be leaned on or to put pressure on, but rather, it was a tachshit. This is somewhat equivalent to the Rab Parad's view over there that it was used aesthetically, and therefore it was not used for leaning or putting pressure on, and that's why it doesn't have tumat midras. So the way that Abai learns it, it's tumat mate. Tumat mate's just as Rashi says, a way to say that it has other tumot maga from coming into contact with items that have tumah, but it doesn't have tumat midras if it's used by a zav, a zavar nida. On the other hand, Rav Amar, aftame midras. It's also Tamei Tumat Midras. And as we already noted in the Mishnah, the Mishnah didn't say that, even though it is Tamei Tumat Midras, is because to differentiate it from the second case where there's Tumat irrespective of whether he's wearing it or not, over here, the Beit Kibul is what also makes it Tamei Tumat along with the Tumat Midras. Amarova Mena Minala, I can prove it to you. The Tanan, we have a Mishnah in Kelim, Agala Shel Katan, a, what seems to be a baby carriage according to Rashi, Tmeya Midras, as a din of Midras, because, as Rashi says, even though the baby plays with the carriage, sometimes the baby itself goes in the carriage, and therefore it has Tumat Midras. Tosafot does not love that explanation, because then it's obvious that it has Tumat Midras. 
Rather, he thinks that the agala here is not something that is a baby carriage, but rather a walker that the baby uses in order to learn how to walk. And the baby leans on it, and that's why it has tumat midras. So that's his proof that you see that things are items that are used for bearing weight in these situations where they're not always used as midras. Sometimes the baby's playing with it. Sometimes the baby's in the carriage, according to Rashi, according to Tosafot. The walker is just for stabilization. The baby doesn't always lean on it. Sometimes leans on it. Both of those are sufficient grounds to make it into Mat Midras. So to over here, in the case of the prosthetic, even though he doesn't always lean or have it bear weight, nevertheless, sometimes he does, and therefore it's enough to make it to make Tumat Midras. Over there, the baby sometimes leans on it or it bears weight. Everybody thinks that in this case, it's all aesthetic. And the individual never bears weight on the prosthetic. I'll prove you that I'm right. Titania, we have a brighter makel shel zkenim tahor miklum. That a staff that's used by individuals to walk, a walking cane, is tahor miklum. Doesn't have any tumah. Not tumat midras. And not tumat amet. Tumat amet it doesn't have because it's pshute kliates. It's an item that has no receptacle to it. And with regards to tumat midras, that's not its primary function. It's not why it's used all the time. It's used most of the time just to help the individual to maintain balance. And since it's not bearing weight, it doesn't have tumat midras. And you see here, even though sometimes it bears some weight, that's not enough to, to consider it or classify it as having tumat midras. So rova hotam litirutse sugya avida. Over there, the cane is not made to bear weight. The cane is there to help the person take steps or meaning that it's helping him to keep his balance, and therefore it never bears weight, and that's why it doesn't have too much midras. Hacha, by the situation of the prosthetic, it's made to be able to bear weight, and the individual does bear weight on it sometimes, and that's the distinction. Rabbi says that it is used in that way, whereas the makel is not used in that way at all. As Rashi notes over here, with regards to pshute kliates and the necessity for a bait kibul, that's only a requirement when it comes to tumata mate, because over there it's compared to a sack, the beged or the eights, and therefore it has to have a bait kibul in order to be classified as something that's mikabul tumat, like a sack. But by tumat midras, we don't have that qualification. So even a pshuteke the eights, even something that's a simple cane, we can become tumat 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 midras if it's bearing weight, and therefore there's a distinction between tumata mate and tumat midras. With regards to the necessity for a Beit Kibul, it is necessary by Tumat Amet and other Tumot Maga. It is not necessary for Tumat Midras, but the test of Tumat Midras has to be something where it's bearing weight or the individual is utilizing it in its primary function to also bear weight. And we don't say, Amod V'nasem Lachtenu, that has some other function that would take it away from being used in that manner. And therefore the Machogadir between Abayi is whether this prosthetic is utilize both for bearing weight and for aesthetics, which is Rava's opinion, or is it only for aesthetics, which is the opinion of Abaye? Now the Gemara continues, to midras la'zara, which was the kisei and smuchot shelo, the chair along with the smuchot, which again Rashi interpreted to be these shoes that were worn at the end of the stumps or the legs of the individual who was using the kisei. So there was a Tana reviewing the Mishnayot of Brighton for Rabbi Yochanan, and he said that you can't go into the Azara for them. I think that a woman can use this for chalitza. 
if she can use it for chalitza, then it's definitely classified as a shoe. It's classified as a shoe. How can you be telling me that there's a brighter that says, Nasim, you can go into the Azara with it. If there's shoes, you can't go into the Azara with them. So today, you must amend that brighter to read, Nasim Bayan Azara, that you cannot go into the Azara with them, because they are classified as a shoe, like in our Mishnah. Luktamin Tehura. These Luktamin are Torah. My Luktamin. Kamarin wants to know, what are these Luktamin? There is an additional girsa here, you can see, that was brought by the Mesorah Shas on the Mishnah, which is that it's anaktamin, which is a Greek word, which then has the meaning of what we're about to say over here, which is that enactment, or something that's an activity, which is it is a donkey that's been carried on the shoulders. There's another interpretation that means a pulley system, but the more mainstream view here is that it's a chamra de akfa, is some sort of donkey that's worn by the comics or the clowns. It looked like that there's a donkey riding on him and he wears it like that. That it's considered to be stilts. That is brought by the baliatosafot over here. That is stilts that were used by, again, the comics or the clowns in order to entertain the people. And therefore, they don't have a din of a shoe because they're not worn normally like that. They're just used for this late sanut, for this comic relief. Rashi, on the other hand, says that these kishure are these pieces of wood that are used to walk in the lime. Rashi does not love the explanation because he says, okay, they don't have tumat mate because they're pshute kliates. But why don't they have tumat midras, at least in that case? So why should they be tehorin? That is why Tosafot favors the other interpretation that these are stilts over here. To answer this question, Rashi, Tosavot says that there's a difference between something where the item is made to be used as a shoe in some instances, or it's something that's solely used for a particular purpose, like going through the teeth, but it's not something that's used as a shoe in general. And so since it's the equivalent of putting on a piece of wood on your foot in order to walk through the teeth, doesn't have a din of a shoe, L-A-M-K-N, like before we saw you wear it outside of that context. As the Ritva says that it depends on whether it's made in the shape of a shoe or not. And the instance here, according to the Ritva, is a case where it doesn't look like a shoe and therefore it doesn't have a din of a minal, even though it's being used functionally in that way, but it's only used in a temporary state for that. So since it's both not in the shape of a shoe and only used to cross through the teeth, that's why it's not considered to be a shoe, as opposed to other items where it's made into a shoe and then used to cross through the seed, that instance it would be considered to be a shoe. That's how they distinguish. But then the Tosavot brings the Oroch and gives the other option, which is that these are still. Rava Baravunamar Parme or Frame, which is a mask. And you can see over here the Mesorah Shas brings, but you can look down in the Rebbeinu Hananel, who brings additional explanations, which is that a chamra de akfe, according to him, is gideim. It's an individual, she adav kitzutzot, that's missing his arms. So, selo yad shel eitz, that he has a prosthetic arm. And that's what this chamra de akfe is. And then frame, according to him, is not a mask that's used, like Rashi said in the Mishnah, to scare the kids or clown around with the kids, which would be the way that we translate it of above. But over here he says, perish pramo, yesh shomrim, shel begech koshrim kenim. It's a bib that older people wear because they are drooling when they don't have strength in their lips to hold in the saliva, so they put a bib on them to capture or catch the saliva that is dripping or the drooling that they have, and that's what this frame is. And all of these items are considered to be tehorim because either they don't have a bait kibul, they don't, they're not used in regular function, they're just used for comic relief, 
and therefore they're not classified as something that is a beged and doesn't have a din of tumah. Okay, now we move on to the next mishtah, which is going to launch us into an area which we'll discuss in much more detail in tomorrow's daf of the strange medicinal cures that the Gemara mentions, which is a banim, yotzim b'ksharim, young boys can go out with knots, b'neim nachim b'zugim, and princes can go out with bells. And here there's a machloket in the Rishonim as to whether the bells here have clappers in them or don't have clappers in them. The Ramah says that it's definitely a case where there's no clapper inside of the bell. And the Me'iri says that it is a case where there's a clapper inside of the bell. And the Mogan Avram says that the Ramah was speaking about the bells that were put on young children. And that's where he's Oser because they're their primary purposes for a cult. But by adults where that's not the case and it's not made to be a clay shear, it would be fine to have a clapper inside of it which then relates to the question about bells on a Sefer Torah or on a parochet, whether they have a din of klishir and whether they can be used on Shabbat. We'll defer that discussion to the Gemara when it actually discusses bells on the clothing itself. It's true of any individual, but the Chomim were just speaking about what's the normal situation, that princes wear bells, and that young children wear these ksharim. Mar says, my ksharim. What are these ksharim? That we're speaking about here. Amar Adamori, Amar Rav Nachman Bar Baruch, Amar Rav Ashi Bar Avin, Amar Rav Yehuda, Kishure Pua. They are like garlands that are made out of this Pua, which was some sort of medicinal herb or root that was then put onto these Kisharim that they wore as a garland. Amar Abaye, so Bai says, Amar Li'em, that my mother told me. Now, Abaye, Mara tells us in other places that his mother passed away at his birth. And so there obviously was not speaking to his mother. And therefore, any time Abayah says Amr Li'em, it doesn't mean his mother, it means his nurse or his stepmother that he was speaking about. Whereas the Miri on tomorrow's daf says that Amr Li'em really means that it's a item that has no real source to it, but it's a common belief amongst the people. And they use the terminology Amr Li'em to express that this is what was commonly believed by the individuals without any evidence to the fact that these are efficacious in any way, and therefore the individuals use Amr Aliyim to express it as if their mother told them this, that it's some sort of misora that they have. In other words, it's a bubby's tale that you've been given this information that these are curative in nature. So Amr Aliyim, Tlata Mukme, three Ksharim, make it that it arrests whatever sickness you have. Chamishav, you have five of them, Masu, then they're curative. Shiva, Afilodik Shafim, Male. If you have seven of them, they're so good, that even protects you against sorcery and witchcraft. Siara. That the only way that these things work is if when they were put together and they were put on the individual, they did not see the sun. They did not see the moon. Mitra, they didn't see rain. and they didn't hear any metal working going on. and they didn't hear the the call of the rooster. Nigre, and they didn't hear the noise of a woodworker. And then Amar Nachmar Yitzchak about all of these qualifications, Nafal Puta Bibira, that the value has been lost in the cistern. Meaning that if you thought that these Sharim had any value, then once you put all these qualifications in place, you made it impossible to make them, and therefore all their value now has been thrown down the drain because you can no longer meet the qualifications that are necessary over here, and for that reason it's no longer helpful 
in terms of being something that is curative. Mara says about this suggestion that it's a garland, Mayuria Banim. Why is it unique to young boys? Afilu Banot. Nami. It should be just as good for young girls. In Mayuria Tanim. Why only speak about young children? Afilu Gdolim. Nami. Even for adults. So, Elamaik Sharim. You can't say that Sharim are garlands because then it should have value to all of these individuals. And why is it specifically said in our Mishnah with regards to young boys? A child that misses his father and is drawn after his father. He takes out the shoelace from his right shoe. And you tie it around his left arm. And the way to remember it is tifilin. The way that you put on your tefillin, if you're a righty, you put it on the opposite arm. So, so too, you take the right shoelace and put it on the left arm of the individual, similar to where you put your tefillin on your left arm, even though you are a righty. And if you do the opposite, it's actually dangerous for the individual. Rashi makes an interesting comment here that the father and son relationship is unique, that the son misses his father a lot when he's away because the father has a closer relationship with his sons than his daughters. And that's why it's uniquely associated with Banim. And this was a cure for a child that was sick for his father. You put this bracelet or a string from his father, his right shoe, on the left arm of the baby, and that helped him out. And that's why it's specifically spoken about Banim and Ktanim. Amr Avin Barhuna, Amr Abhamar Barguria, Shufe Kasa Tibore Bishabto Shapir Dami. Putting these hot cups on the belly of the individual on Shabbat is permissible. So as Rashi describes over here, one is allowed to heat up a cup with hot water and then dump the hot water and then place it on the individual's stomach in order to cure what seems to be some sort of stomach ailment. Whether the stomach ailment is actually pain or it's because of a shifting of the intestines and then you put this hot cup on there. It's whether a question of whether the hot cup helps or creates a vacuum when you put it upside down on the body because it was hot, and then that sucks or creates a vacuum on the body, and then it shifts the intestines to the right place. But one is allowed to do this on Shabbat. So over here, there are a number of reasons you might have thought it was problematic on Shabbat, and each one of those then is waived in this situation. One possibility is that the problem of Rechitzah, using hot water over here, and the Chiddush is that even though you're using hot water, doesn't matter because you're dumping out of the cup first, and that's why it's Mutar, and that's the way that the... Shulchan Aruch seems to quote the halacha over here, that that's the reason that it's mutar, even though you might have thought otherwise. The Rambam, on the other hand, says that it is a problem of rufuah b'shabbat, but the problem of rufuah b'shabbat is only in a case where you might come to grind the smemanim, which is you might actually crush the items that you want to use for the medicinal purposes, but that's only true where that's a possibility. Over here, using this cup has no possibility of shechikat simamanim, and therefore it's exempt from the qualifications of refuah and Shabbat, and that's why you can do it. That's once again quoted by the Shulchan Aruch. The last possibility is that it might be considered classified as uvdin dechol, something you would do on a weekday. And again, that's waived over here on Shabbat because of the fact that there is pain or suffering going on, and therefore we waive that on Shabbat in order to allow the person to be relieved of that pain or difficulty. Whereas the Ran over here suggests that the problem is either there's Sakana, and that's why you would be allowed to do it, although that seems strange because that would be an overarching principle and not unique to this situation, or he suggests because it doesn't look like Rifuah, because it's most times it's not successful, and therefore it doesn't have a din of Rifuah. 
A person is allowed to put oil and salt on the palms of their hands and the soles of their feet on Shabbat. And it was used as a way or mechanism for relieving one from either the hangover from drinking or to relieve them of their inebriation. Again, here, why this is allowed... Ramam suggests over here is because this is used by healthy people, not just people that are sick. And therefore, it doesn't look like you're doing refuah on Shabbat. And the Taz, along those lines, says something similar, which is that this is not refuah because getting rid of inebriation or a hangover is not considered to be refuah. And therefore, it can be done on Shabbat. And Mr. Brewer then extends this halacha to snuffing tobacco on Shabbat. And he says that just like healthy people snuff tobacco on Shabbat, so do people who would use it for a headache or for other ailments, they can do it on Shabbat as well because it's not nikar. It's not obvious that you're doing it for ufuah. That's an extension of what we just saw in the Rambam. Whereas the Magen Avram invokes the principle that we saw before, which is since this is not something that can be done through smanmanim, therefore it doesn't have a din of refuah or the gzera of refuah, and that's why it can be used on Shabbat. But if he does do that, then you would have to qualify the Magen Avram's head there to what we saw before by Shufei Kasa, which is only in cases where there's pain or suffering would you be allowed to utilize this type of refuah. The Gemara brings examples of individuals that use this medicinal cure, which is Gadar Ravuna Mibay Rav. Ravuna, when he used to leave the Beit Midrash of Rav, Rav Mibay Rabichia, and Rav, when he used to leave the Beit Midrash of his uncle Rabichia, Rabichia Mibay Rabbi, and Rav Berichia was one of the Talmudim of Hakim of Rabbi when he left the Beit Midrash of Rabbi. As Rashi says over here, they used to give to the students to drink, and they used to become inebriated, and to the high-level students, to the best students, they used to give them this cure for their inebriation or the hangover that they would have. When they used to get drunk, they used to hand them oil and salt. They put it on the palms of their hands, and on the soles of their feet. And they used to say, just like that this oil, because of the heat of the body on the hand and the feet, will become clear. So too, the alcohol or the drunkenness of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, but using his mother's name, she also should become clear-headed, meaning that they should rid themselves of that headache or the inebriation. Below, if they don't have that as a cure, mighty shia dedana, you bring the ceiling clay of a barrel, the sharile b'mayin, you soak it in water, and you say the same type of incantation, it's just like the clay becomes clear as it's soaked in water, so too, the inebriation or the alcohol or the hangover of this individual should be cleared up. One is allowed to choke on Shabbat. Rashi describes it as something where you almost lift the neck of the individual up so it looks like you're choking them or the individual is being hanged and it is a cure for a problem on the upper part of the spine which somebody become locked or discomforted and the individual does that to open it up or make them more flexible. The Aruch says that it's a laryngeal muscle reset, something that they do to the neck in order to free it up and you can do this even on Shabbat. You can swaddle a baby on Shabbat here Rashi again says it's in order to straighten out their limbs or lock their limbs in place. All of these are allowed. The Rambam once again says in both these cases the reason that it's permitted is because 
you can't do this ayyadeh sman manim, and therefore it's not a din or a problem of refuah on Shabbat. Others suggest that this is something that they do with healthy people and not just to people who are sick or having a difficulty. And therefore, it would be permissible on Shabbat as well. Rav Papa Matni Banim. Rav Papa said that it's the plural Banim. Rav Zvid Matni Ben. Whereas Rav Zvid said the singular Ben. Rav Papa Matni Banim says that it's both issues with regards to his sons. And he has, like we saw in our Gemara, Amr Avin Barhuna, Amr Rav Chamer Barguria. So he says that Avin Barhuna is the author of both of these positions. And that's why he has Banim in plural to say that it can be used in both of these cases. And they're, both of them have attribution to Avin Barhuna. But Zvid Matne Ben, Kamaita Matne Avin Barhuna. Only the first statement, which is the one about Mutar the Chanik B'Shabbat, does he quote in the name of Avin Barhuna, Bahai Matne La. And the second one, he says, is not attributed to Avin Barhuna, but rather Barabba Barhana. Dama Rabba Barhana, Lufufe Yinoka B'Shabta, Shabir Dami. Swaddling a baby on Shabbat is permissible. Amar Abaye, Amarli Aim, my mother told me, Kom Minyane, all incantations, Bishmadima should use the mother's name of the individual. It's similar to what we do when we do a refuah shlema for someone. We use the mother's name rather than the father's name to be absolutely certain that we have the proper attribution of the individual. So too with an incantation, you should do the same thing. Bechol kitre bismola. And all knots that are used are done on the left side. That's what we saw before with regards to the gaguim of the child that it's put on the left side. So any knots that you use in these curative situations should be put on the left side. Any incantation that tells you the number of repetitions, that's the repetitions. If you don't have a number, it should be 41 times. The default situation is 41 times, unless it's specified otherwise, how many times you need to repeat the incantation. Okay, we're going to stop here, 14 lines from the bottom of Samach Vavah